Good morning, Redeemer. As always, it is an absolute joy to be with you this morning, worshipping God. Uh, and this morning, I have the privilege of being able to bring His Word to you. Um, well, I'm sure that most of you, all of us would have noticed that summer is on its way again. Temperatures are starting to rise. You know, we're starting to use the AC a lot more. And before we know it, most of us are most likely going to be taking holiday to escape the heat. Uh, and for those of us that are left behind, we're going to be running from AC to AC just to try and survive. Uh, but before we get there, you know, we're going to take the time to not only enjoy the spring, if you can really call it spring, uh, but enjoy God's Word as well, and specifically the Psalms. So this morning, Caesar started a new six-week series called Psalms in the Spring. And over these next six weeks, we're going to be looking at six different Psalms and studying the beauty of these biblical poems that form part of the wisdom literature of the Bible. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, but one of the more popular ideas in the world today is that we don't really need a God. The mere mention of God today is often, or even suggesting that we do need Him, is often met with controversy, uh, with ridicule, or with the belief that it's an outdated idea, an outdated concept. And after all, I mean, the reality is that we are the ones who are in control of our lives. We are our own masters. Our destiny lies in our own hands, right? People like Rhonda Byrne, who wrote a book called The Secret, have made an absolute fortune with this concept, using quotes like, your life is in your hands. No matter where you are now, no matter what has happened in your life, you can begin to consciously choose your thoughts and you can change your life. Is that the case? Have we as a human race gotten to a point where we no longer need God? Have we made it to the point of complete and utter self-reliance? That every aspect of our life is in our hands. Friends, the reality is that although we may think we've reached this point, the truth is that our need for God is greater than we can ever imagine. And this is something that we're going to be looking at and considering this morning. And to help us consider this question, we're going to be looking at Psalm chapter 5. Now, <clears throat> The, the psalm is a, a rich book of writings that is filled with many different kinds of, of genres. Uh, we see songs of praise. We see royal psalms and confessions of trust. We see corporate prayers of lament. Uh, and we see individual prayers of lament throughout the 150 books that make up the psalm, psalms. But <clears throat> the psalm we're looking at today in particular, is an individual lament. It's not really known what was going on at the time that led David to write the specific psalm, but what we do know is that it led him to lament on his situation and cry out to God. Now, because of the structure of the psalm, we're going to be jumping around a bit. Uh, and to help us follow along with all our jumping, we're going to be looking at three specific points. So firstly, we're going to be looking at pray to God in verses 1 to 3. We've been looking at God and man in verses 4 to 6 and 9 and 10. 
And we're going to be looking at joy in the Lord in verses 7 and 8 and 11 and 12. So pray to God, God and man, and joy in the Lord. <clears throat> if you have your Bibles with you, please open up to the Psalms. You'll find them towards the, the middle of your Bible, just after Job and just before Proverbs. Uh, you can also follow along in the bulletin or up on the screen. Psalm chapter 5. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. For to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down towards your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with the tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels because of the abundance of their transgressions. Cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. Let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. Amen. So as we get started, look back with me at verse number one to, as we consider our first point, God and man. <clears throat> uh, the first three verses of the psalm are a crying out to God. There is a sense of urgency that we see as David realizes that he is in a tough situation. Now, no matter how much we try and convince ourselves, we will never be self-sufficient. Inevitably, there's going to come a time when we realize that we cannot fix the situation or change our circumstances by ourselves. And often, this leads to feelings of frustration and an exasperated cry for help. I'm sure this is something that each and every one of us here can relate to. We have all faced something that has caused us to, <clears throat> that has caused us to look outside of ourselves and in a moment, cry out to God, either <clears throat> for help or just to simply ask why. And isn't it interesting that so often people who boldly proclaim that they don't really believe in God or aren't really interested will so often ask you to pray for them when they're faced with a, an unfortunate family situation or in a really tough situation. <clears throat> or they themselves will just simply break down and pray. There is this recognition that they need help. They need, and <clears throat> that the help they need has to come from somewhere other than themselves, other than their own abilities. For David here, however, his lament doesn't come from a place of relying on himself until he's reached that point where he has no other option. But rather he recognizes that his hope never lay in himself but rather in his God and in his king. The example of prayer that we see from David is shown in two ways. We see a prayer of words 
and we see a prayer of unspoken groans and longings. David calls out to God to hear his words because he knows God will hear him. We know because of the covenant that God has made with his people. But even though he's in heaven, he has an open ear towards them. David knows this and calls out to God. But that's not the only thing that we see here. David asked God to consider his groaning. Now there are times when we are so overcome with a specific situation that we simply have not got the words that, that we need to say or that we want to say. We just seem to be absolutely spent. And we just have this, this inward despair that's eating away at us. And this is the example uh, of prayer, that, the other example that we, of prayer that we see. Those silent meditations that don't seem to have any kind of vocalization. David knows that he can take comfort in this as well. He knows that if he has asked God rightly, God will grant it. But his groans remind us that if we have omitted to ask God for what we most need, then we are to trust God and let him fill up the vacancy of our prayer. So often we think that the only way uh, that, that God will, will respond to us is through, through the opening of our mouths. That somehow the sovereign king of the universe needs to hear our words come out of our, our mouths in order to, to, get, to answer our prayers. But as Charles Spurgeon reminds us, words are not the essence of prayer, but the garments of prayer. Let me repeat that. Words are not the essence of prayer, but the garments of prayer. Friends, it's not about what we say or how we say it, but prayer is the recognition that we truly need God. And this is what so many people realize when they're facing trials. In verse 2, David again cries out to God, calling for God to give attention to his cry. There are times when all we can simply do is cry out to God. There are just no words, no clear forms of comprehension. But God is able to comprehend the meaning. Just as in the same way that when my daughter Eva cries, even though she's too young to speak, Nikki and I are able to comprehend what her needs are, and we will drop everything to attend to those needs. And most of the time it's she's tired, she's hungry, or she just simply has a dirty diaper. But it's amazing that to a loving parent, our children's cries are music and have this magic influence on us. In terms of the passage, it's important to take note of who is making the specific cry. It's David. He's the one who is calling out because he knows who God is. And God knows who David is. He knows because of the uh, promises and covenants that God has made with his people. And David can call upon God knowing that God hears the cry of his children. David calls to my king and my God, reminds us that God is the true ruler of all creation and over all of his people. And it's this one true God that David is crying out. But the answer to his cry for his situation to change doesn't lie anywhere else. It's not in his thoughts or in a desire to see his situation change, but in God alone. David knows to to seek God and God only. And when it comes to prayer, 
God is to be the only object of our worship and the only resource of our soul in times of need. David made a resolution that as long as he lived, he would pray. And even though the answer might never come, he would not cease to pray to God. As we look at verse 3, we see not so much a prayer, but a resolution. Now the statement, in the morning you hear my voice, does not mean that God will only ever hear our prayers in the morning. Now the reference to the morning reminds us that we can no longer, we can no sooner die than live without prayer. When it comes to prayer, the morning, as Spurgeon put it, is the fittest time for conversation with God. This is when we are at our our most precious. We've had a, a good night's rest. And what better way to start the day than to meditate on God's word and profess utter reliance on him to get us through the, the upcoming day. For all of us, prayer should be the key of the day and the lock of the night. As you sit here this morning, what does your prayer life look like? Is it just something you do here on a Friday at church or you know, maybe pray occasionally before a meal? Why is it that it's so easy for us to do other things like watch TV or spend time on the internet rather than pray? Is it because we think we don't really need to pray? That, yes, there are times when, you know, there are the right times that we, we are to pray, but in general, you know, it's, it's not that urgent. Sure, I I will pray, but only when I need something. Other than that, everything else else is fine. Friends, the reality is to live a life without prayer is to live a life independent of God. To live a life without prayer is to live a life independent from God. It's telling God that we don't need Him. And this is not what we see here from David. David. David is a man who needed God constantly and communed with him daily. This example of David is one that each and every one of us should seek to follow. Let us encourage each other to cultivate the spirit of prayer. Let us be, be constantly meeting up with each other to pray together. Not just once a week here at church, but throughout the week. The Prince of Preachers, again, Charles Spurgeon, encourages us that we should begin to pray before we kneel down and should not cease until we rise up. Friends, let that be us. Let us, as Redeemer Church of Dubai, be a church that is in constant prayer. A great way of doing this is by simply going through the members directory. In it we have the members that we have covenanted to, that we have made, that we have made a promise to not um, fail to, to meet together, or not neglect gathering together and to constantly be in prayer for each other. Let us be fulfilling the spirit of this covenant, and let our prayers be a pleasing aroma to the Lord. David closes out verse 3, stating that he will prepare a sacrifice and watch. The idea here is that the prayer comes in the context of a faithful worshiper. A faithful worshiper who has received assurance and expresses personal consecration through these ordinances. He is saying that he is directing his prayer to God, and he is going to watch. But watch for what? And this brings us to our second point, God and man. 
I remember watching a TV show last year where this father was having his dis- a discussion with his teenage daughter about God. And she proclaims that when they go to church, every Sunday she hears about a God of love, this God of forgiveness. And she encourages her dad to forgive this person who's wronged him. He looks up at her, turns around and says, that's what you get out of church? Really? And to justify his anger, he says, when I go, I hear about the God of the Old Testament, a God of wrath who pours out his judgment on all those who've wronged him. As he finishes his rant, he proudly turns to his daughter, telling her, that's my God. She just simply steps back, looks at her dad and says, well, that's not mine. Is that how it should be? You have your view of God and I have my view of God and let's just leave it at that. David doesn't seem to think so. And he's very specific about the type of characteristics that he uses to describe God. He's very clear that God does not delight in wickedness. Evil cannot dwell with him. Those that are boastful shall not stand before him. And then it kind of steps up a notch. God hates all evildoers. He destroys all those who speak lies. And he abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. There is no denying that these thoughts don't exactly beat around the bush. They are straight to the point and lead us to consider two specific questions. First of all, who are these people? And secondly, how can a just God be loving? To consider our first question, who are these people? Who are these people that David uses to describe God's character? I mean, they sound really, really bad. I mean, they, they must, in this context, be his, his enemies. But what about for us today? I'm sure you know, this must be the murderers and the rapists and all those people who are filling up prisons around the world. And thankfully, that doesn't describe us, right? Friends, the reality is that this section describes us perfectly, each and every one of us. It describes our condition before a holy and righteous God. And apart from Him, we are wretched sinners. Sinners who deserve His punishment. And this may seem unbelievable, but when we consider just how high God's standard is, it starts to become very clear. If we think back to the passage that Scott read for us this morning in Romans, it is abundantly clear that none of us are good. We are all under sin. No one does good. No one is righteous. Just a few lines later in the same passage in Romans 3.23, Paul tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Not one or a few, but all. And it's not only the consequences of punishment that we see here in the psalm, but how this rejection of God shapes our lives. And it's here in that we see some of the parallels that are are, are evident throughout the poetry of the Psalms. Look there at verses 9 and 10. David begins to describe how these people have no truth in their mouth. They are liars. And in the next few lines, we see another example of biblical poetry. We see this picture being drawn for us. And David paints a pretty macabre picture. He says, firstly, that their inmost self is destruction. We know from Scripture that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And if the inmost self is destruction, then what must be coming out of the mouth? 
David tells us it's like an open grave. Now, take a moment to think through this. The picture that David is using here is not just, you know, a hole in the ground. Think of a body that has been dead and left in the ground for a few days. You know, during that time, it started to decompose, started to rot. Maggots and other bugs and insects would be crawling around and inside the body. The, the festering juices would have become, started to kind of ooze out and the smell would be absolutely revolting. I don't think anyone would be able to come within 20 feet of such a grave. It is seriously gross. And yet, this is the, the type of description that David is using to describe those who are opposed to God. That's the description of our natural state before a righteous and holy God. Verse 10 describes the judgment that must eventually fall on all these people, on us. David calls for them to bear their guilt, to let them fall by their own counsels, and that because of the abundance of transgressions are to be cast out. Now, I don't know about you, but to me at this point, David is starting to sound a little self-righteous. You know, he... But he goes and makes a very clear distinction. It's a point that is clear throughout the Bible and is vital as we consider where we stand before God. Look there in the last line in verse 10. For they have rebelled against you. Not against David, not against God's people, but against God himself. Our sin is against God and God alone. The question I asked at the, point, at the end of point one was, what was David watching for? And we see the answers in these verses. David will watch and wait for God to execute his rightful justice. For God to pour out his wrath and judgment on all those who have rebelled against and have rejected him. Which leads us to our second question. How then can a just God be loving? To answer this question, it's vital to make sure that we have a right view of God, a right understanding of Him. For the most part, if you were to ask someone just walking on the streets uh, to describe or explain what they thought about God, <clears throat> you know, you would, they would use their human wisdom, their human reasoning, their human logic uh, to describe what they think God is or what they think God should be. So you end up with an answer like, you know, He's this type of old gray-haired, grandfather-type figure just simply sitting in his rocking chair with this abundant love for everyone. Or that somehow he's this, you know, this cosmic butler who needs us in a way and you know, is, is not satisfied until he fulfills our needs. When we seek to define God in our terms, we make ourselves the final authority on God. We are letting our thoughts decide who God is rather than God telling us who he is. Let's think of it like this. If I were to ask the question, what is good? There are a number of answers that we could come up with. So, for example, pancit is really good. Butter chicken is really good. McDonald's is really good. Maybe not McDonald's, but you kind of get the idea of where I'm going with that. And the thing for us to remember that what is good for one person is not always going to be the same for what is good for another person. And this is particularly evident in the world today. 
because there is a sphere of insulting someone or infringing on someone else's ideas or beliefs, there's no single standard that everyone holds to. So everyone just kind of goes around, lives by their own standard, and of uh, their own standard of what they think is good or what they think is right. And given the fact that we are sinful people, our standard of good is always going to be corrupt. And it's the same way when it comes to justice. In the same way we want to define what is good, we want to define justice in the way that we feel is good and fair. In a way that will benefit our ends. We want to place ourselves in God's position and go on the standards that we think are perfect. And just as we saw with the example of defining what is good, there is just so much variety when it comes to people's ideas of justice because of the fact that we are corrupted. The only solution is to have a perfect standard. But it cannot come from us. It has to come from God. He is the perfect standard. How? Because he is the one who created everything. He is the one who determined what is good and what is just, just by saying that it was. And the reality is that anything that doesn't meet up to this perfect standard of God isn't good or just at all. As we look back at this passage, we see that it's not a case of being judgmental on David's part, but rather having a right view of who God is. It's not that God just hates evil, but the fact that he is just and loving and will execute his judgments on those who deserve it. And it's not up to us to tell God who we think is just and who isn't, who deserves his wrath and who doesn't. The truth is we all deserve it. It's not a case of just simply hating your enemies and trying to get along with them. Jesus in Luke 6 reminds us to love our enemies. If they do wrong to us, we are to turn the other cheek. We are to do good to those who hate us. But rather, it's a case that God's justice would be done, that his name wouldn't be profaned, but rather glorified. Our hope doesn't lie in executing our justice according to our standards. Our hope lies in the fact that God's standard is always perfect. And it's not up to us to try and meet that standard. We need to look elsewhere. David was well aware of this truth. The truth that his hope was not in himself, but rather in God. In God's steadfast love. A love that would ultimately be fulfilled in Christ. Which brings us to our third and final point. Joy in the Lord. If we were to just look at verses 4, 5, and 6, and 9, and 10, life would, in all honesty, seem pretty miserable. You know, we realize that we're all in opposition to God, and because of that opposition, we're going to pay the rightful penalty for that sin. But that's not the whole story that we see here. Look back at verse 7. David makes the bold statement that he will enter God's house. And he has a very confident hope that this will be certain. But it's not something that he's going to achieve on his own. So if that is the case, if it's not going to be something that he's going to achieve on his own, then where is this assurance coming from? Is it coming from Christ? David lived a thousand years before Jesus. So he couldn't even know about him. But David knew God. 
He knew who God was. He knew that God was faithful and that ultimately God will fulfill his promises. David's hope lay in this truth. Because of God's steadfast love, he will be able to enter his house. The steadfast love that David refers to found its ultimate expression in Christ. He is the one who is perfect and righteous always. He is our only hope and assurance. When Christ came into this world, he didn't just come to to be a good example of what we should do or how we should live. No, he came with a specific plan and a specific purpose. A plan that was put in place before the foundations of the earth that he would live a perfect, sinless life. And that he would offer himself up as a sacrifice on our behalf. His life is the only one that has ever been pleasing to God. His sacrifice is the only one that has ever been fully satisfying to God. And it's in this sacrifice that our hope is ultimately found. We are to repent and put our trust in this truth that what Christ has done, what he has accomplished, is enough. For David, the joy in the Lord comes out of the desire for his life to change. He knows he needs a righteousness that comes from outside of himself. And that's why we see in verse 8, David praying to God for God to make his way straight. Because the righteousness that David needs cannot come from himself. It has to come from God. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I just want to take this opportunity to welcome you. We are so thankful that you've joined us this morning. Uh, And as Frank mentioned earlier, if you have any questions, feel free to talk to himself, to Glenn, to myself, or even the person that brought you here. We would love to discuss any questions you have and discuss things further with you after the service. But if you are new here, my prayer for you this morning is this, that you would recognize this truth. You stand condemned before God. That there is nothing that you can do in your own strength to make things right. I urge you, don't waste time. Turn to God now. Repent of your sins and put your faith and trust in Christ and what he has done for you on the cross. Not only that, but you would see that there is, this, there is a sense of urgency here. You know, there's, there's no neutral ground for, for you to stand on and kind of just step back and wait and see what happens. If you are not for God, you are against God. And the consequences of that are dire. And to my Christian friends, we see a message for us here too. Firstly, we see the response that we are to have. We are to bow down to God. His truths should shape our lives. And we see the contrast between the lives of those who are opposed to God and the lives of those who are for God. We saw how the lives of those who are in opposition to God end in destruction. But it's a very different picture for those who are for God. For those who are in Christ we see that there is reason to rejoice. We rejoice because God is a faithful and just God, a God who fulfills His promises. We rejoice because He is our refuge, He is our fortress, and He is our shelter. 
The devil who prowls around like an angry lion cannot touch us if we are in Christ. He cannot devour us. We are assured of God's protection, that it is spread over us, not just for our good, but that we may give all glory to God so that ultimately he is the one who will be exalted. We can have the confidence of this because thanks to Christ, as we celebrated last Sunday on the, of the beach, it is finished. Finally, we see that God will bless the righteous because he has blessed Jesus who is righteous. It's because of Christ's righteousness that has been placed on us when we turn and repent and put our faith and trust in him that we find favor with God and are covered with it like a shield. Now, this in no way means that our lives are going to be, uh, you know, <clears throat> wonderfully blessed here on earth, that we're going to have this abundance of wealth and good things, or that our lives will even just be plain sailing. But what we do know is that God will sustain us. And that ultimately the greatest blessing that we can have is the assurance that because of Christ, we stand before God declared righteous. And because of that, we can look forward to an eternity in heaven, where just as we sang earlier, holy, 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 we will be able to sing with the angels and gaze upon God's face and sing, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. At the beginning, I mentioned how the world today will, will tell you that we don't really need a God, that ultimately our destiny is in our own hands. And I guess as we think about it, that is, that is true. Apart from God, our destiny is in our own hands. But the reality is it doesn't have the final outcome that we think it will have. The self-reliance ends with an eternity facing God's judgment for rebellion against him. Friends, our need for God is greater than we can ever imagine. Turn to him today. Stop relying on yourself and let him be your refuge. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you not on our own righteousness but through the abundance of your steadfast love. May this cause us to be humbled and bow down toward you. Lord, lead us in your righteousness. Make your way straight before us, that you may be glorified. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name.